Hello everyone, and first and foremost, I would like to apologize because in this episode I keep on saying Sikh when I mean Jain. Jain, Jainism is very different than uh, Sikh and Sikhism. Uh, in Jainism, we have a very big focus on karma, not producing it, and uh, you know, not eating meat, not producing that which ties us to this world, and the renunciation of uh, most worldly pre pleasures. But mainly, I kept on saying Sikh, um, S-I-K-H, when I meant Jain, J-A-I-N. So I apologize for that. When you hear Sikh, just think Jane for this episode, and I greatly appreciate your patience. And I'm sorry for all those I have offended. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Spirituality and Magic Podcast. My name is Hunter Salazar, and I will be your host today. So today I'd like to talk about my thoughts on reincarnation. Now, my thoughts on reincarnation have been developing for many years. I was first introduced to the idea in a serious way, um, a way that made me really think about it when I encountered the works of Paramahansa Yogananda. Uh, I think around the age of 21, 22, and that's really what got me on the path in Hinduism. So, <clears throat> reincarnation. Some initial thoughts, and then we're going to actually listen to a piece from an NPR episode uh, titled, Searching for the Science Behind Reincarnation. And it was on January 5th, 2014, so it was obviously six years ago uh, from today. Um, but uh, I'll go ahead and give some initial thoughts, and we'll go to that clip, and then we will discuss afterwards. So when we're talking about reincarnation, we're basically talking about uh, a form of life. Um, minerals are a different process, and it takes them a while to, to gain consciousness to the level of becoming uh, a more conscious being. Um, but there is there is spirit behind everything. There is soul behind everything. Now, spirit means life force to me, and soul means, well, soul. Um, when I say there's a spirit behind everything, I really mean that there is soul behind everything. It is behind the fabric of reality, of the multiverse. Um, you could say it kind of is the fabric. And magic is the is kind of not the manipulation of souls, but... The, manip the manipulation of a different energy that also underlies um, all of the multiverse. So, magic is something that has its own reservoirs. It has its own um, subterranean, sub-reality um, frequency, I guess you could say. Soul is deeper than that as far as the fabric of reality goes and the fabric of the multiverse. So, I'll give some examples. Um, now... Basically, I believe that everything started in this, not necessarily this one cycle, but in, since the beginning of the Big Bang um, in this universe, and you know, Big Bangs happen again and again and again, as we see the, the planets and the, the galaxies are, were expanding, and then now they're slowing down that expansion, and a lot of physicists think that there's going to be a reverse effect of it coming back together. Um, in Hinduism, it could be the day of Brahma, and then the night of Brahma is when everything comes back in one point, at least in this universe, before it, and then there's a night of Brahma, then it explodes once again, after, you know, however many billions and billions of years. So, um, basically all consciousness in this, in this, uh, in this Big Bang era, this particular one, and in all of them, really, I, th I think, um, we were all just gases, minerals, 
um, basic elements. There was there was the consciousness that exists within us behind these base level level minerals and um, materials. Um, it took many years for took many 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 years to form planets to form suns, and eventually life came into being. It it was inevitable, really, um, because once the consciousness of all these minerals and, and matter and energies, once they exist for a time in this state, they start to form life over time, and then the soul the souls of all these various minerals um start to develop become you know bacteria start to develop some kind of some level of of something we would consider conscious um nowadays and then of course we have the continuation of that process where bacteria evolve and eventually become um plants animals and us um now, this is just some basic ideas that you know, I could go into detail, but uh, it's not necessary for right now. Um, so eventually, you know, when life is formed and has different stages, there's going to be some souls that were originally part of those first bacteria <laughs> that um, either are, have achieved liberation from this uh, creation that the spirit beyond creation is still is still a part of creation and that creation is a part of the spirit beyond creation but there's slightly different they're they're different frequencies if you will i know this is kind of getting confusing <laughs> doing my best to explain it here so um so eventually um life gains you know becomes plants animals um, and animals have way more free will than plants, but not nearly as much as humans. So animals, they can be good or bad animals based on some very, you know, basic instincts. Um, choosing to be a good, a good mother or a good father and a compassionate animal. Those things still exist in animals, but to a very, very small degree compared to human beings. That's why it takes so long in animal forms. You know, you might go through a million animal forms before you reach uh, the human being form. And of course, you know, you know, first before human beings was the was apes, and then the the souls that were the most progressed were you know those apes that started to started to understand more about their environments, how to make tools, their relationship to one another, and eventually human beings came around. Now, the souls that are the, we were probably, anybody listening to this and myself and uh, human beings now, we're, we're way after the first, the first souls. The only way that those, those souls would not be completely merged back with, um, with uh, the spirit beyond creation is if they still have, if they did something very terrible that knocked them down several pegs even to, to lower forms of existence. Um, or they are they stay here because they want to help everyone else out um, into complete union with the spirit beyond creation. Um, so let's say I'm a I'm a good dog. <laughs> I'm a dog and I I take care of my pups. I'm nice to them. I I follow the best parts of my instinct. Um, so I might eventually get maybe after some more dog forms, maybe some more ape forms. I might eventually get to a human birth. Now, this is something that's tre tremendous for a soul's progression. T 
to step from being an animal with very much tied to instinct to being a human being who can conceptualize uh, their existence or try to conceptualize their existence and their own individuality and the the ability to make choices that aren't just based on instincts and fear and attraction, um, craving and aversion and selfishness, the ability to not be selfish, but to understand oneself as being a part of the grander whole after conceptualizing the opposite, which is, is uh, selfishness, but choosing the right direction and acting on, you know, action is very important in, car in, uh, in reincarnation because action has to do with karma. Basically, every action has an equal and opposite reaction in, uh, when it comes to karma. Um, so it might not happen immediately. If you hit your fellow human being for no reason, just because you wanted to pick on them, you might not immediately get your karma back, but eventually you will probably be hit by somebody else, and then they'll get that karma transferred to them. Um, or sometimes uh, it, it manifests in a different way. Sometimes if you hit somebody and you're mean to them, um, you'll just feel very, you might feel very lonely at some point in your life based on that, you know, for however long that pain and however intense that pain was for the person that you hit. Um, it might happen in this life or it might affect who you're reincarnated into, um, where you're reincarnated, how fortunate is your birth. Um, so reincarnation and karma, they, they can create circumstances that reward you for your, your good actions or punish you for um, your bad actions. And uh, it's hard to tell exactly when the karma is going to come back at you, but it always comes back at you. If you do a good thing, then good things will happen to you eventually. It doesn't mean that if you do a good thing and you're just in a really bad place on earth and you keep on doing good things, that it, you're going to experience that in that lifetime. But you will experience it eventually in another lifetime or if you travel to a different dimension. Um, if you have this, if you have enough good action or if you uh, do enough um, self-work to realize um, your connection to everything, if you do enough work in that regard... Uh, liberating your idea of, of separateness, um, then uh, you might go to another dimension and maybe not come back here. But, so, but a lot of the time when you go to another dimension, it might be uh, a more pleasant dimension where you learn or maybe enjoy the fruits of your labor. You will come back here until you realize um, you're connecting this to the source. When you start to take away your materialistic um, association to gain, um, to personal wealth, to greed, to just treating other people as material. Maybe when it comes to lust, you're treating somebody as material, not another human being. Um, that's, that's lust to me. Um, you know, we, we all know the different sins or whatever, but it kind of goes beyond that because when a human being chooses to be mean to even a bug that wasn't harming it, then that can have a negative effect on your, through karma and then on reincarnation as a whole, depending on, you know, different circumstances might come about to where you're a little bit crushed. Maybe it's just crushed, um, you know, emotionally, or maybe it's a little bit crushed um, when it comes to your status. Um, the karma doesn't always have to be a direct, direct. It, it, it will be, um, it will be the exact amount of, of karma or negative effect that you had on somebody else, there will be an opposite reaction uh, to the same degree, but maybe not the exact same um, manifestation of it. Um, so Sikhs, uh, 
they they are Sikh monks are very ascetic um, Sikhs. Um, they try to produce no karma. Um, they try to eliminate having a negative effect or hurting any other living being, even going so far as to only take fruit from plants when um, either it would have been wa- it would have been wasted otherwise, or taking food from plants. Uh, when the fruit drops, or maybe right off the plant, as long as they have other ones, but not hurting the plant itself, just taking the fruit, for instance. Um, same with some vegetables as well. Uh, not hurting the plant itself, but feeding on the, the fruit or the vegetables. Um, meat eating is completely cut out because you're, you're, when you eat meat, you're, you're reinforcing and supporting, whether you know it or not, um, the needless killing of animals, which are higher up than plants. The degree of consciousness that you're affecting, whatever being, whatever degree that being has, must be taken into account. If you, if you kill an ant, it's, it's not as bad as killing an animal. If you kill an animal, is not as bad as killing a human. Um, if you hurt and destroy a plant when you harvest from it, that's that's bad, but not as bad as if you had eaten an animal. So um, what Sikhs do, uh, they try to, they don't eat meat, they do not kill insects, they are focused on meditation, yoga, asceticism, going without the things that they don't really need. Now Sikh lay people, they have less restrictions than the Sikh monk, monks or ascetics. Um, Sikh lay people, they usually only have sex to reproduce, not for pleasure. At least, that's kind of one of the rules. Um, ascetic, Sikh ascetics never have sex, of course. Um, the whole culture is about not producing karma by taking on, not easing one's existence and taking on the burden of of living as compassionately as possible. And the goal is to reach what they call omniscience. Not necessarily omnipotence, omnipotence, but omniscience. Um, so Sikhs, uh, they want to reach that level of union with the source. They just describe it as different. For them, you know, there's there's some work with gods and stuff like that, but not nearly as much as, as Hinduism. For Sikhs, it's more about not producing karma and thus reaching liberation and omniscience uh, for oneself and helping others do the same. It's not about worshiping gods. It's more about working on oneself, one's effect on those around them and the environment and plants and animals, mitigating all of that um, negative karma that they can accumulate. Now, it's very difficult. This is a point that a lot of Hindus make. It's very difficult to not produce any karma. For Sikhs, they do the best they can. I think that the effort counts for something. But I think that it's almost... I think it is impossible to not produce karma. Every thought can produce karma, choosing one thought or another. Um, Every time you walk outside, you know, a lot of Sikh ascetics, they'll carry brooms and they'll only walk on pavement and they'll brush aside anything like microorganisms and they'll wear masks that filter out that do not allow the microorganisms to go into their body and be consumed by the body. Um, Once again, these are the ascetics. I'm sure some Sikh lay people do this. Um, But 
no matter what you do, you're going to produce some karma by accident, if not on purpose. And sometimes it's just not regulating your thoughts because thoughts produce karma as well. I know it's uh, it's a big net of action and reaction and um, and reincarnation is very much connect. Karma is very much connected to reincarnation. Um, so, you know, if we're looking at Christianity, you reap what you sow. Very straightforward. That's basically what karma is. You reap what you sow. Um, it's definitely a different environment than or a different understanding than Christianity and um, Islam. Surprisingly, uh, Judaism and the Kabbalah and the understanding of everything being a manifestation of God, that's closer. But uh, Christianity and Islam, most forms, not all, Quakers are actually have very much compassion and uh, believe that there's a light in everything. But, um, yeah, it's it's... It's less about uh, Sikhism and, um, you know, even a lot of Hindu Vedanta thought. Vedanta, Vedantic people believe that everything's part of, the, a part of one thing, which is a very basic understanding, but one that I have as well. Um, but in Christianity and Islam, it's more about appeasing a separate god and being loyal to the, uh, the final prophets, in the case of Muhammad, and um, Christ's only begotten son, in the case of uh, Jesus. Um, accepting, you know, either the last prophet or the only son of God and doing the right prayers, understanding God in the right way, uh, appeasing a God instead of, um, instead of unfortunately being the shepherd of this earth, which is what really Jesus got at a lot of the times is that, I mean, it wasn't exclusively what he talked about, but being the shepherds of this earth instead of its butchers. That also applied, I honestly think, to eating meat. That sure you can, you can use the wool from a sheep, um, you can use the milk, you can use the dairy uh, from a cow, but to kill it and to eat it, I think was against what Jesus taught, in my opinion, to to eat meats because it it isn't necessary, and we have to be the shepherds and not the butchers, as I said. Um, Jesus said we are the shepherds of this. Anyway, uh, so it's a very different. Sikhs have a very different. Outlook, um, Hindus, man, there's so many different understandings of reincarnation and karma. In Hinduism, uh, we can go to, we can go to the idea of um, karma yoga. Now, karma yoga is all about acting correctly, filtering one, filtering one's actions and efforts into not gaining good karma per se, but towards acting correctly towards everything around you and everybody around you, producing a good effect for the environment and the beings all around you. Um, but not doing it for the fruit of the action. This is very important. If you act while reflecting on the fruit of the action, then the karma, the good karma is significantly less. Doing something that is right, not because it feels good, not because, not because you get good karma, not for any other reason than, than that it's the right thing to do, um, lessens the karmic, of, the the good karmic effect, which is hard to focus on because a lot of the time we know, okay, well, I'm not gonna get, I'm not gonna have good karma if I do this, and then already you're kind of screwing yourself. But um, in uh, Raja Yoga, it's about controlling the mind. Um, it's about it's about meditation and resolving the conflicts within ourselves. 
knowing that it will have an effect externally on the world. Um, and really taking charge of the one domain that is yours, your own mind. Taking charge of that so that you become more than somebody who is focused on external reality and external manifestations. Raja Yoga is about controlling the mind and employing it for the sake of oneself and the sake of others and for one's own liberation, moksha, from this world. We look at bhakti yoga, faith yoga. Um, you can call um, Hare Krishna bhakti vedantists. Um, I believe we're... I'm not going to describe Bhakti Vedanta, but uh, it's 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 complicated. But uh, Bhakti Yoga is faith yoga, so it's all in not. It's all in placing faith in not even necessarily a completely external God, but placing faith in the divine consciousness of Godhead, having faith in that, not and not trying to gain something for oneself, but intensifying your faith in the Godhead. And usually that comes, that comes with, uh, you know, Krishna attached as being the, personific- the perfect personification of Godhead. Um, having faith in Krishna, for instance, and giving up all of your, all of your doubt, all of your pains, all of your suffering, all of your all of your hatreds, all of your misconceptions, giving that all up to Krishna and trusting that Krishna will take care of it. But truly offering doubt and pain is a difficult thing to do because it basically gets you to take up the mindset that, okay, these terrible things are happening or I feel so disconnected. And then you chant Hare Krishna, Hare Rama, Hare Hare, Hare Krishna, Hare Rama, Hare Hare. And you chant the name of Krishna, chant the name of Rama, both um, both avatars of Vishnu, preserver parts of, of God, preserving part of God, and trusting that whatever reality that you come upon, whatever happens in your reality, trust in God, essentially. Bhakti, bhakti, uh, bhakti yoga. Jnana yoga. Knowledge yoga. Um, learning and employing knowledge in a way that is unselfish and focused on cultivating wisdom. By studying knowledge, you can cultivate wisdom. You are able to control more of that process, the process of realization as a jnana yogi. Then, of course, we have... I'm just briefly going over these, by the way. Kriya yoga. Um, the yoga of energy. Of liberation through the manipulation of breath. And energy up the spine. Paramahansa Yogananda was a Kriya yogi. And he taught Kriya yoga to many people in the United States. And in India. Uh, in, his, in his lineage... There is, of course, Jesus Christ and Krishna, Krishna being the oldest, Christ being the second oldest, then Babaji, and uh, Lahiri Moshe, then Swami Sri Yukteswar, then uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. I can't really do Kriya Yoga very much justice when I'm briefly talking about these things, but it is a form of liberation through breath and energy.
And um, once you, and in a lot of these systems, the idea is once you connect to the divine, once you liberate your consciousness, achieve, achieve samadhi, a uh, level of super consciousness. There's different kinds of samadhi, maybe kopla samadhi, uh, and other forms of samadhi. Uh, liberating the minds and not allowing it to be identified with the body, but reaching a state, a state of consciousness that is oneness and staying in that, learning from it. Uh, Tantra yoga, the most dangerous form of yoga, but still a valid path, is sex yoga, basically. But it's not about, if I may be so bold and crude, uh, it's not about coming. It's about... Instead of directing it into your, into your genitalia, your sex organs, it, you direct that energy up the spine to you know, clear blockages and then achieve liberation as, you, as that reaches your crown chakra and is merged with the, uh, the chakra that is beyond the body, beyond the spiritual body. At any rate, um, there's a lot of different Hindu understandings of liberation, but when it comes to reincarnation... All these efforts through all these different paths in uh, all the different yogas are directed to escaping the cycle of birth and rebirth, of reincarnation, of death, of suffering, escaping it, becoming something that is not manifested here in a materialistic way, but reaching stages where life and death don't exist in higher dimensions and, and well, in high enough dimensions. Just a little anecdote. It is said uh, in Ragnarok, the light elves that are above the Aesir and Asgard um, actually are not affected by Ragnarok, which is interesting. We see some correlations here. And a lot of my dimensional understanding goes back to Nordic pagan understanding. Um, I, I mix Hinduism and, um, and, uh, and Nordic uh, spirituality, shamanism, if you will. Um, my two main patrons, as many of you know, are uh, is, uh, Divine Mother Kalima and uh, Odin. Divine Mother Kalima first. She is actually a prominent goddess in the yogas when it comes to achieving liberation. Kal means time. Kali means conqueror of time. Conqueror of birth and death. Birth and rebirth. Conqueror of reincarnation, if you will. So... I was planning on doing some opening thoughts, and it, it, it extended into a much longer opening piece. Um, we're going to take a break and get a, get a word from our sponsor, but um, when we come back, we will be listening to a piece of Searching for the Science Behind Reincarnation. Um, that was a segment on NPR, and we will talk about that after listening to that. But, but, but first, let's go ahead and take a break for a word from our sponsor. All right, everyone, we are back. So let's go ahead and play this clip. Now, once again, I'd like to remind you, this is a makeshift show, and I will be just placing my phone beside my speaker um, because, yeah, that's how, that's how good at this I am. Uh, so I hope it comes out good. I think it will. This, is, this phone's got a pretty good, um, it's got a pretty good uh, microphone on it. So let's go ahead and listen to this clip. We might not listen to it all, but I want to give you a general idea of uh, kind of searching for the science and the understanding, you know, in the material sciences behind reincarnation, which I think, well, no, I, I, I think I know anyway, that um, we will be able to prove reincarnation completely through science within the next hundred years. Um, 
assuming we continue to evolve and not recede into our more primal natures. Fingers crossed. At any rate, here is the clip. It's not an experience that's been rigorously tested by many scientists. Enter Jim Tucker. He's a professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia, and he is doing exactly that, testing claims of reincarnation, especially those made by children. Dr. Tucker joins us from the Virginia Foundation to talk about the science behind this phenomenon. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thanks very much for having me. When did you first begin to get interested in this, in the idea of reincarnation as a as a ripe subject for scientific inquiry? Well, I got interested in it in the late 90s, but this work has actually been going on at the University of Virginia for 50 years. Over the decades, we've now studied over 2,500 cases of children who report memories of past lives. And, and what we try to do is to determine exactly what they have said and what's happened and then see if it matches uh, the life of somebody who lived and died before. Uh, once I got involved, I began to focus on American cases and I uh, have uh, explained some of the cases in, in this new book that I have out. And really, some of the American ones are, are quite compelling. Let's talk about a few of those. Um, you mentioned your recent book. It's called Return to Life. And you chronicle the stories of many children, including one that got a lot of national attention. It was the story of James Leininger. He was a boy who remembered being a World War II fighter pilot. Can you walk us through that case? Sure. So James is the son of a Christian couple in Louisiana. And when he was little, he, he loved his toy planes, uh, but also around the time of his second birthday started having horrific nightmares four or five times a week of being in a plane crash. And then during the day, he talked about this plane crash and said that he had been a pilot and that he had flown off of a boat and his dad asked him the name of it and he said Natoma. And he said he'd been shot down by the Japanese uh, that he had been killed uh, at Iwo Jima, and that he had a friend on the boat named Jack Larson. Well, it turns out that there was uh, an aircraft carrier called the USS Natoma Bay that was stationed in the Pacific during World War II. Uh, in fact, it was involved in Iwo Jima, and uh, it lost one pilot there, a young man named James Houston. James Houston's plane crashed exactly in the way that, that James Leininger had, had described, hitting the engine, uh, exploding into fire, crashing into the water, and quickly sinking. And when that happened, the pilot of the plane next to his was named Jack Larson. And, and how old was James when he was making these claims? Well, it started when he was two, uh, and a very young two. That's amazing. Uh, like with most of these cases, it, it faded away by the time he was uh, five or six or seven, which is typical. But it was certainly there quite strong for, for some time. And how do you know that these kids aren't echoing things they have heard their parents talk about or making up stories, using their imagination, articulating dreams they may have had? Yeah. Well, certainly with the imagination part, if, if we had never been able to verify that what the child said matched somebody who died, then you could certainly uh, just mark it down as, as being fantasy. Uh, but in cases like James's, uh, the previous person, James Houston, was so obscure 
I mean, he was a pilot who was killed 50 years before, and, and the, he was from Pennsylvania, and, and uh, James was in Louisiana. I mean, it seems absolutely impossible that he could have somehow gained this information as a two-year-old through some sort of normal means. In fact, it took his dad a couple of years, or really more than a couple of years, three or four years, to be able to track it all down and, and see that, in fact, it, what James was saying all did fit for, for this pilot who was killed. So break down the science for me, because there will be a lot of people who hear this who think, there's just no way. Well, I think it's very difficult to just map these cases onto a materialist understanding of reality. I mean, if, if physical matter, if the physical world is all there is, then I don't know how you can accept these cases and, and believe in them. Um, but I, I think there are good reasons to think that consciousness can be considered a separate entity from physical reality. And, and in fact, um, some leading scientists in the past, like, like Max Planck, who's the father of quantum theory, said that, that he viewed uh, consciousness as fundamental and that matter was derived from it. So in, in that case, it would mean that consciousness would not necessarily be dependent on a physical brain in, in order to, to survive and could continue after the physical brain and, and after the body dies. Uh, in these cases, it seems, uh, at least on the face of it, that a consciousness has then become attached to a new brain and, and has shown up as, as past life memories. This may be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So does that mean, does a consciousness need to inhabit a body? Well, we don't know, of course. But in a case like James Leininger, I mean, it's 50 years between lives now. Who's to say he didn't have a, another body in the meantime? But my guess would be no. Now, in this world, it may need to be in a physical body in order to be expressed. Uh, but it may well be that our brains are conduits for consciousness, uh, but it is actually uh, being created somewhere else. So what are you trying to reveal or prove? What to you would constitute an important scientific development in this field? Well, I, I don't know that I'm necessarily trying to prove anything, but I'm trying to sort of find out for myself what what seems to be going on here. And, and I think these cases contribute to the body of evidence that consciousness, at least in certain circumstances, can survive the death of the body. Uh, that, that life after death isn't necessarily just a fantasy or, or something to be considered on faith, but it can also be uh, approached in an analytic way and, and the idea can be judged on its merits. You were clearly interested in this for a long time, and it's what motivates your work. But I wonder, as you have evaluated so many cases over the years, how has that informed your own understanding of an afterlife and what happens when we die? Has that changed at all for you? Well, I, I've certainly become more persuaded that there is more than just the physical reality. I do think it's quite likely that if we do survive, that there's not just one experience that everyone has, that, that the afterlife uh, may be as varied as, as life in this world. That's Jim Tucker. He's a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia and the author of Return to Life, Extraordinary Cases of Children Who Remember Past Lives. Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So there we have it, my, brother, my brothers and sisters. Hold on one sec. Oh, God. That was awful. All right. So, um, yeah. So, 
this is this is actually a case the uh the young man who was a pilot this was actually a case a pilot in a former life um i've encountered this case before it's a very compelling case and i i've encountered a number of other ones including some cases where children would say exactly where they were buried where where a birthmark was on the body um, where they were buried, and sometimes these were graves that were unmarked, um, but they went and looked, and it turns out there's a body there, and it matches the description, maybe not the birthmark part, but, um, but like other descriptions of the body, uh, this is, you know, a lot of the time in, in occult, and in magic, and in ideas of Eastern ideas and even, well, Celtic and uh, Nordic ideas of reincarnation, there's, there's people that take up battle lines when it comes to certain beliefs, okay? So reincarnation is going to be rejected by a number of people who are taught that that is not true, that you just... You go to heaven forever after you die. You go to hell forever, or um, or even on the opposite end, that uh, oh, this is just wishful thinking. The only reason you think that there's anything when it when we after we die is because it makes you feel better about yourself, and it makes you feel like your life matters. But really, we don't go anywhere, and we're just this body. And then when we die, we're gone forever. Um, and both those extremes, both those extremes, I feel like reincarnation is kind of in between those two extremes. I feel like there will be more and more science behind reincarnation and consciousness. Consciousness is a linchpin of, re- of reincarnation. If consciousness cannot exist, if, if our brains are the emitters of consciousness and not the receivers of consciousness, then reincarnation cannot exist. But consciousness as a vibration separate from the body this is something I've always believed. I've always believed that the brain is a receiver of consciousness and that consciousness can exist without the body and the brain because it is not transmitted. It is received. So here's a, here's a scarier thought that, um, that doesn't really have a lot to do with what we're talking about, but maybe a little bit. I have theorized that in the future, we'll, we, we will be, be able to, this is many hundreds of years in the future at least, we will be able to create bodies, android-like bodies, and engineer brains to receive certain conscious consciousnesses, whether it be of individuals or of a type of consciousness that we want to place into a body. Um, maybe every individual has their own frequency, maybe not. Maybe there are Maybe you, you hit a baseline frequency of just a compassionate person, and then uh, one, of those consciousness, one of those consciousnesses kind of slips in. Interesting to think about. Hard concept to understand. Um, it's, it's, reincarnation is something you have to think about for quite a while. I, I often you know, wonder how people get exactly where they are or are born exactly where they are. But it's important to note that even if somebody is is born into a really bad circumstance to not just say, oh, well, you know, he, they obviously did something bad in a past life. That creates a lot of negative karma for us, and it's really not for us to say because we don't know the exact circumstances. So it's not, reincarnation is not an excuse to dismiss people who are suffering because they were born 
a certain way or in a certain place. It's very important to remember that. Um, and, you know, whatever your thoughts on the afterlife or even if you believe the afterlife law at all or if you don't, it's really important to think about the brain and how we are conscious, how we, how we, ex- how we are consciousness and if, if there's a way to heighten it, to open it, to not necessarily manipulate consciousness, but to, uh, to boost it. And can it be done in the opposite direction? You know, certain demons, demonic forces, they are a certain kind of consciousness. What do they exhibit that others do not? Why can't they be born as animals sometimes? Because, you know, I do believe demons exist. They, they, are, they aren't demons forever or haven't been demons forever. But through the choices that a particular consciousness has made again and again and again, they might find themselves in a very lower realm, very hyper-materialistic realm, even more so than this realm. I mean, anybody who can't just be an, an animal or even a bacteria, that particular consciousness or even that frequency of consciousness has to be incredibly low, has to be, has, has to be so low, has to, has to be so terrible. Um, that's worth thinking about as well, but it's not something we should focus on because while the opposite does exist of the higher consciousness and that we, we do need, we have that anchor, we have, the, we have, two, we have two directions um, from any center point, um, and perhaps it's more nebulous than that. We have directions around and I'm talking about different ways consciousness can form and go. Um, it's really important to think about these things. So I'm going to go ahead and end the podcast. But if you – I'd like to mention two things. If you have any questions or rec- any recommendations or you have, you have something you want to tell me or ask me, just uh, – you can contact me at www dot facebook.com slash hunter dot salazar once again www.facebook.com slash hunter dot salazar i am very open to as long as you're polite i'm very open to talking with a number of different um people with different beliefs or lack thereof um and also if you want to support my channel and not only get my youtube videos as well by the way i am on youtube under hunter salazar i'll be the first result um, if you want to get my YouTube videos, my podcasts in one place, and you want to get updates of the grimoire, grim, grimoire I am writing, um, it's called the Gray Grimoire, um, and uh, every time I write a piece, I give an update to Patreon for my patrons, and they get to read a little bit more of it. So you have to donate at least a dollar a month on Patreon in order to get access to this and to have my podcasts and um, YouTube videos in one place. And I share some other little things that I don't share on uh, YouTube or, or po- the podcasts. Sometimes little videos, sometimes things that I write. All you have to do to get access to all of that is donate uh, $1, become a patron, donate $1 at www dot patreon dot com slash dark realist capital D capital R once again www.patreon.com slash dark realist capital D capital R that's where you can find me at any rate thank you very much for listening I'd love to hear from you all and I hope all of you have a wonderful day